there are some of us in the natural movement world who say that it's not about the footwear, it's about the form. And we're going to help you adjust your form to something more natural. Then there are people who are well known in the industry, a researcher named Ben O'Nig, for example, who says you don't want to alter your form because if you do that, you're going to get injured. So what's the truth behind that? What's going on in this whole thing about form and altering it and what's appropriate and what's not? We're going to investigate that today on the episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what a takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, usually starting feet first, because you know those things are your foundation. And you probably know if you've listened to us before, we're breaking down the mythology, the propaganda, sometimes the outright lies that people have told you about what it takes to uh, run, walk, hike, do CrossFit yoga, whatever it is you like to do, and to do that enjoyably and efficiently and effectively and did I say enjoyably? I know I did. It's a trick question. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different until you are. You won't keep it up if you're not having a good time anyway. Uh, I am Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the podcast. We call it the movement movement because we are creating a movement. Don't worry, not a cult. Yeah, maybe. Um, and doesn't take much for you to be involved. All you have to do is share and I'll tell you how you can do that. It's really, really easy. And it's about natural movement, letting your body do what bodies are supposed to do without getting in the way unnecessarily. If you want to find out more, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You don't need to do anything to join, but you can find the previous episodes, subscribe to hear about new podcasts, find out all the places you can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, where you can like and share and give us a thumbs up and ring the bell on YouTube. You know what to do. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's get started. Richard Diaz, it is a pleasure to have you here. Do me a favor. Tell humans who you are and what you do. Wow. You know, that's interesting because when I have dinner with some people that I've just met and they ask me what I do, I have to pause because I'm not sure how to explain it. Uh, I like to think that I'm I'm kind of a, a human mechanic. You know, you bring your body. Wait, a mechanic, a, a mechanic of humans or just a human type mechanic? A mechanic for humans. How's there we that? Go. Okay, I like it. And so the reason I would suggest that is because there's nothing that I would refer to as a niche that I, that I am. People want to put me in a box often. Yeah. Uh, they, they want to refer to me as the running guy, you know, the running coach. And I almost take exception to that because there's a lot of things that I do that are not exclusive to running. But I do a lot of work in the running industry. I travel around the country doing clinics. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm doing a clinic in Connecticut next week. I just did a clinic in uh, Jacksonville, Florida last month, going to do another one here in Tennessee in July. So I'll spend about, uh, oh, about eight or 10 trips around the country during the year. And then a lot of clinics I'll do locally. And the clinics are really geared for people that are frustrated with the way they're training. And so because I work in the space with a lot of runners, and more specifically these days with obstacle course racing athletes. And they're very bullish, meaning that they take on things very aggressively, uh, sometimes in over their head and end up getting injured. And uh, so I think the largest audience of people that I deal with are frustrated. They're, they're just tired of hurting themselves. Sure. And uh, I actually have a podcast that... Uh, I put together, it's probably been about nine years ago now, which is the Natural Running Network. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many things that come to mind right now because I've never met with you. Yeah. No. I saw your shoes. Okay. Can I just kind of just get right into it? Let's do it, baby. I, I saw your shoes 
And when people come to see me, it always comes out. It's, it's, as a matter of fact, they might bring me four or five pairs of shoes they have. And they're saying, well, which pair of shoes should I wear? Because I'm doing VO2 max testing, gait analysis, things like this. And I'm going to teach people what I believe is the proper way to run. And they're already, there are people that will take exception to that, that concept. <laughs> yes, um, they will. No, there are people who will also say, I know how to run. I'm a human being. I have legs. You don't need to teach me how to run. Right. Well, until they hurt themselves. Right. Well, then they still yeah. often, they often still think it. They often still think I know how, but somehow I got hurt. And yeah, right. Well, again, this is, this is my day job. And uh, <laughs> I've, I've, over the past, uh, it's been over 10 years now. That, that I've put clinics on around the country. And I've met so many people. And my MO is I'll show up. It's a weekend thing. I've never met these people before. And in the course of that weekend, I have to impart all this information. And it's always interesting for me waiting for the person that's going to have a problem with what I say. <laughs> and and whether I'm going to get some rejection or some pushback based on the concepts that I share with people. And what I try to tell people, and I believe this to be true, is I'm an evidence-based guy. I need to believe it. And I need to, I personally, I need to believe in what I speak of. And I need to, I need to be able to go into a room with conviction, not because someone told me that this is the way to do something, but evidence has shown me over time and years and years that there is a way to do things and there are many, many ways not to do things. So getting back to your shoes and the question people will pose to me about what type of shoe should I wear? And I, I, I'm very reluctant to point to a brand. And so here's where you come in. Okay. I recall some of the first shoes that, that came about that were even the term zero, zero drop shoes and the concept of a broader toe box so those toes can splay, and all of these little accoutrements that check the boxes for me. And um, then I think somewhere along the way, the uh, board members, the shareholders get together, and they see uh, a competitive brand that's just their stock is skyrocketing because they came out with a new, a new gimmick that's really working, cushions. Quote, really, sorry, I'm putting air quotes around working, selling. Let's say selling. selling. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. So they're selling. They're selling a lot of problems. Yeah. And I, I can almost imagine being in the room and the pressure coming, regardless of what your theories are about what you should wear and why. We know we're in the business to sell shoes, and if we're not selling shoes, then what are we doing here, right? I can almost hear that conversation, and they're saying, "Well, look, let's add to our quiver a shoe with." Uh, a stack height that's double, triple what we used to. We're going to still hang on to the same concept of, of a zero drop, but we're going to put the cushion under there to, to placate the people that feel like they need to have a lot of cushion in order to be safe. Or because they've been injuring themselves, they want to land on something softer. And this is something that does not work with me because I know that cushioning is not the solution. Uh, I, I know that... Uh, improper running mechanics can very many times be at fault uh, and just changing. And I'm, I'm familiar with Bino Nick and I've, I've paid attention to a lot of his work. And the thing that Bino Nick had said is he's never seen any alteration in a shoe that would make a difference 
as a result of injuries. I'm gonna, I'll interrupt you on that one. So there's a group of us who we, we've gotten together and call ourselves the Healthy Feet Alliance. So we're trying to basically create a kind of umbrella slash lobbying arm for people who are who believe in natural movement. And we had him on a call. Well, I got to back up. I was on a panel discussion at the American College of Sports Medicine a couple of years ago. Me, Tony Post from Topo Athletic, formerly from Five Fingers, he was the CEO there. Uh, and then a guy from Brooks and a guy from Adidas. And the Brooks and Adi guys both quoted Benno saying, um, everyone has a unique movement pattern that is basically impossible to change. And so the first thing that I said to him was, uh, is that accurate? Are you actually telling me that if someone is wearing those shoes and they switch to zero shoes, their gait isn't going to change? He goes, no, no, that's no, absolutely. What I'm saying is it's almost impossible for something for you to change. I'm saying two things. It's very difficult for you to change something when you're switching to basically the same shoe and all those shoes are the same. And more importantly, you don't want to make an arbitrary change to your gait because that's going to lead to an injury. And where that theory came from was his N equals one sample of himself. And so we, I chose not to get into an argument about that, but he will concede that if you're going from like a tradi quote traditional, and it's only a 50 year old idea, traditional running shoe to something truly minimalist or bare feet, undeniably things change, but that's not how his research and what he said has been uh, taken and, and bastardized by the companies making big, thick padded motion control or sporting shoes. Well, so my take and what I've learned and again, I said it already, I'm an evidence-based guy. Yep. I watch the cause and effect relationship with people that make change. And the changes could be change the type of shoe they're wearing, change the volume of running that they're doing, um, and, or, and or change their gait pattern. Yep. Uh, and the biggest problem that I've seen is where someone that, for example, may be putting in 50 miles a week, alters their gait but doesn't alter their volume and or makes yep. a massive change in the style of shoe that they're wearing and doesn't change the volume. It doesn't change Absolutely. the volume. And so as a heel striker, uh, if you carry that gait pattern into a zero drop minimal shoe, you're asking for trouble. Even worse, the one that I saw, and, and this is the thing that's so interesting, the way the whole quote barefoot movement evolved was in large part when the five fingers came out and people literally did think all I need to do is switch to these shoes and I'll be fine. And I said, to, and I said to Tony post, this was 11 years ago. I said, you know, you're dropping the ball on the education necessary to have people transition effectively. And his response was something along the lines of, yeah, um, it's because things are moving so fast. We just can't get people to tell the story correctly. And they tried to mitigate that with a, with a transition program that was much too aggressive and too, you know, kind of uh, cut and paste instead of individually based. And so um, that was sort of the, the number one thing. But the, the other one that happened at that same time was people got the idea, oh, you're supposed to land on the ball of your foot. And so what they would do, and I, the first time I saw this, I literally, I was running with someone trying to show her how to run in the sandals we were making back then. And I saw her do something that I, I had to stop because I was so stunned. And she was still overstriding, still reaching out with her foot way too far in front of her, and then just pointed her toes to land on the ball of her foot. And in fact, at the University of Colorado, 
they, where they did studies trying to prove that barefoot is bullshit. Um, they had a picture of in a mag from like the Colorado alumni magazine or something showing a runner doing that same thing overstriding, pointing their toes. So that misunderstanding about where you're supposed to land on your foot also led to those same kind of injuries, because even if they weren't heel striking, if they're just landing, you know, on the ball of their foot way out in front of their body, that's not what feet are designed to do. So either keeping the volume and just making the switch or making that one to your point gate change based on erroneous information about what you're supposed to be doing was the other one that I saw over and over and over. Right. And so you change the dynamic, you change the, the stress patterns Yeah, from the posterior chain to the anterior chain. Yeah. And so you start having metatarsal stress syndrome. I see a lot of that. Yep. Uh, Morton's neuroma, all, yep. all that, all that stress because the, I call it uh, toe diving coming into the back <laughs> too sharply. Yeah. And you cause problems. So, so you were talking about 11 years ago in post with uh, Topo. I first got introduced to the concept of a shoe that was designed to be forefoot with Newton. So I'm going to have to interrupt you there too. So here's the joke about that. I actually, it's so funny. I met with, I can't mention a name. I met with someone who was, let's just say one of the first 10 employees at Newton. And because I'm in Boulder or right outside of Boulder, I yeah. know all those guys. Yeah. The idea with the Newton shoe originally was, can we create something that has greater energy return, which is a made up, term, of course, as well. There's no such thing as energy return. Anything that's cushioning sucks energy, end of story. And then they came up with this little trampoline idea to put these little trampolines in the ball of your foot, which there's some interesting things about that too. But the the thing that was so funny with that product was while they're pitching the idea of, let's call it natural form running for the fun of it. And then they're claiming that that shoe uh, led people to do it or engendered that. Back to your point about being evidence-based, there was zero evidence for that whatsoever. And all you had to do is watch people running in that shoe and no one changed their gait in that shoe. If they were, well, so what I was going to, what I was going to share with you is I was in Boulder with Danny Dreyer. If you don't yep. drop a name, I'll drop it for you. Danny's uh, a good, no, Danny's an old friend. Yeah. And Danny, oh, wait, uh, hold on. Danny Dreyer's from she running. You mean Danny Dreyer, Danny Abshire from Newton. Danny Abshire. I'm sorry. Danny I know the, both. I know the Danny's well, they, by the way, they were both there the same, the same week. <laughs> Funny. So, uh, and uh, what's the other fellow's name? Uh, well, there was a whole panel of people that were gathered together to discuss the nuances of natural running. And they were trying to cause this revolution or they called the re-evolution of running. Yeah. And I was part of that for the early days. And Danny had, Abshire actually had came out uh, and done some work with me in California. And uh, this is, bef- you know, just in the, the birth of doing the clinics that I started doing. Uh, Danny was kind of there with me on this. And uh, what I learned, again, the evidence was that people that would buy these shoes with the promise of becoming a natural runner and still running on their heels and never really touching, you know, the, the little piano, p- piano keys in the front of the shoe, right. uh, they were still heel striking. Right, and, right. And I used to tell people, if you really want a pair of those shoes, get the secondhand pair from the running shoes shop because they're selling them for 25 bucks <laughs> and they were, you know, the returns, they were had, they had massive returns because people were hurting themselves. Yeah. And I would see people sawing, almost sawing off the heel of the shoe and never actually getting onto the bridge that was designed to 
you know, let you know that you're in the right spot, basically, with, with what they were selling. Well, even with even with that, I mean, speaking as a sprinter, so when they had their first public event here in Boulder, I put the shoes on and just, you know, ran up Broadway and back down Broadway. And the thing with those little trampoline piano key pods in the forefoot is like anything that's supposed to be springy. It's all, and people, I, I keep saying, people just need to understand physics better. It's going to be tuned to a particular weight and speed. If you're not that weight and running at that speed, it's going to get in the way. And what I felt um, when I ran it, it was, it was just too squishy. It was like, I, you know, I'd land and I was just, it was slowing down my ground contact time. I felt like I was just having to bounce to be able to run. And it just was not tuned for the way uh, someone who is a natural four foot landing sprinter ran. And they were really confused by that. I remember. Yeah, it was an interesting conversations we had. Uh, I had Mark Kukazella was there. Yep. I- Irene Davis was there. Yep. Man, it was all-star cast. Of, well, Jada, Jada Sherry was there. Jada Sherry was there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, getting in the mix with these guys and listening to what they had to say, about traditional running patterns and, you know, the, the mistakes that we made with shoe design. And I kind of got entrenched in all that. And uh, I started to develop my own theories about how you might approach change in the way you're going to run. And so you, you dropped the ball. You said when you dropped the bomb, I should say, when you said people don't understand physics and it really comes to, to be a function of where are you putting the load? Uh, how stable are you when you make contact with the earth? how much afferent feedback you're going to get so that you can find stability quicker. Uh, And all of these little nuances that people aren't thinking about, they're just trying to, and or they want to admire their work by by overstriding to see that, in fact, they're on the front of their foot. Right, right. In which case, they're causing new problems. And so what I run into, and this is, you know, you're going to have to forgive me because I'm an old old guy, and if it comes in my brain, it comes out my mouth. Hold on, wait, hold on, hold on. How old are you? I'll be 70 this year. Oh, nice. I'm turning 60 in a couple of months. So, um, so, all right. And, and FYI, I have that same neurological problem where once it's in my brain, it comes out of my face. So we're in good company. Okay. So here's the thing, the shoe that you're producing. Yeah. Checked my boxes prior to you sending those shoes to me. I'd never wore the shoe. I have a couple of clients that were wearing them. Uh, and incidentally, these are older women. One of them is 76 years old. Uh, I coached her through six marathons and she never ran until she was 66. Oh, I love it. And she's wearing your shoe. And then I have another girl that that trains with her older woman. She's probably, I got to say, she's got to be getting close to 60 herself. And uh, I, she's clinically obese. So how much she weighs does not factor into, I mean, it sure factors into this, but uh, she runs well which allows her to run in your shoe. Right. And, and as a matter of fact, she prefers to run in that shoe because all of the things that I've taught her are, are coming to fruition. She's, I've, I've taken her to, uh, you have to appreciate this woman, if you can visualize this, she's about four foot nine, and I think she weighs about 170 pounds, and Asian, and used to complain a lot about soreness. My quads are sore, my this or that. And I used to say, take a day off, take a day off. And then one day I said, you know what, let's, just for fun, let's go the other way. We've been you know, backing off. Let's, let's accelerate. I said, I want you to run 100 miles next week. Okay. Love it. And, you know, she laughed about it. And we were running together. And I said, well, here's how you're going to do it. And we started talking about how we're going to get the volume over the course of the week. So she was at about 25 miles that week. 
Uh, the very next week, she did 66 miles. <laughs> the week after that, she ran 115 miles and was no worse for wear. So right. the soreness that she normally would complain about in her legs or whatever, that didn't go away, but it didn't get worse. And she didn't run into any orthopedic issues because she put on that massive volume quickly because she learned to put her weight on the ground properly and she was able to take the weight. So those two women wearing these shoes prompted me to consider looking at your shoe. And so when people ask me, well, what kind of shoe should I buy, Richard? I don't want to give them a brand because I can't trust the brands. Most of the brands that, you know, you, you know who I'm talking, you already mentioned Topo, we're talking about Ultra. These guys early days were making a decent shoe. Right. And so the comments I would make to people is, I want you to find a shoe that's going to protect your foot, but it's not going to get in the way. It's not going to impede natural functionality. So we want to limit that influence from the shoe and we want to protect ourselves. That's it. Do you remember, do you remember what Phil Maffetone used to say for advice about buying shoes? Yes. Was it go to Walmart, go to, go to Walmart, get the cheapest shoe you can find. Uh, you know what? It's, fun, it's funny you bring him up because uh, Phil Maffetone and I did a clinic together in Las Vegas. It's probably been about 25, 30 years ago now. <clears throat> Again, I told you I'm an old man. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, we did we did a clinic for I was there on the behest of a heart rate monitor manufacturer. And Phil was there uh, because he was friends with the owner of this chain of health clubs. Matt, by the way, Las Vegas Athletic Clubs, they have like four clubs and there must be 400,000 members. It's a huge, huge business. They're, they're, I think their cookie cutter club is 90,000 square feet on average. Wow. Yeah. So we were supposed to do a thing for all their personal trainers. And I think they had, uh, but collectively, they probably had about 50 personal trainers that worked for the company. And so Phil, I never met Phil. And he came in and he was kind of the featured guest, you know, and he was going on and on about uh, a lot of different things. And he was ranting and I was literally trying to fall asleep, trying to appreciate this is 30 years ago. And uh, my my interest in him was all the things that he had to say about heart rate. Right. And the whole 180 minus your age thing that he was all about. And, you know, I, I'm a clinician. I've been doing VO2 max tests on athletes for 25 years. And so my curiosity was to, to see whether his, you know, his predictions were accurate. And I literally did VO2 max tests with him standing next to me on all the people that he, you know, he was chatting with. And I said, you got one, missed it, got one, missed it. <laughs> and uh, coming away from it, I said, you know what? I think the guy's a lunatic. And I just, he was talking about these very minimalistic shoes and had this some old woman that he brought out that she was going to run a marathon in this, you know, uh, I forgot what kind of a shoe it was, but, you know, it was years ago. So it wasn't anything that is uh, of the new standards, I should say, but very, very minimalistic. And I looked at him. I said, this guy's going to kill this one. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because I reached out to him and did a podcast with him. I don't know, 20 years later. So it's, I probably did this. Well, I was doing podcasts. So. It was in the past six or seven years I did this podcast with him. And I got him on and I said, the reason I brought you on was to apologize to you. <laughs> I said, because I, I said so much bad shit about you over the years. And I said, it, it turns out that a lot of the things you were talking about 
turned out to be true. And I was wrong. And I said, I'm, I'm literally am calling you out to apologize to you. I, we, I, had a good laugh. we had a good laugh about it, but my first conversation with Phil, I said, I, I think I got one of your books, you know, in 1980 something or other. And um, I'm curious if and this I think we had this conversation, you know, probably 10 years ago. I said, I'm curious if you feel vindicated or if you feel mad that it took so long for people to catch up because that one. <laughs> well, so look, at I have to tell you, I don't I don't agree with a lot of the things he says. And given that I've been doing VO2 max tests on athletes for 25 years. Well, wait, I got to clarify that. I wasn't talking about the VO2 max part because as a sprinter, I don't give a shit about VO2 max. It was really just on the footwear and gate part that I was. That oh, I yeah. I mean, and I have to tell you that I, I, we were, that's pretty much what I apologize. For. Yeah. But the concept, and you, you even shared that, uh, of being able to ultimately run faster by running slower, I don't buy. Because his claim to fame was Mark Allen. And the work he did with Mark Allen and suggesting that, you know, having him slow down is what turned him into this five minute mile. And, and I, I have to be honest with you, I've been, I've been coaching athletes for all this time. And I, I do, I do believe developing the aerobic system is important. Yeah. But I also believe developing the anaerobic system is equally, equally important. important. Well, I was going to say, this is the difference between what Phil is doing and what Arthur Lydiard did. And so Lydiard um, and I'm friends with a, a couple of his athletes, um, uh, Lorraine Muller, who lives here in Boulder, who is just a total sweetheart, who, you know, and, and their thing is, yeah, it's doing the slow stuff just to build aerobic an aerobic base. And then Arthur had people doing lots of anaerobic stuff. They, they, they did a lot of hill running. They did a lot of speed work. I mean, because and they had to because he was coaching everyone basically the same from 800 meter runners to marathoners. And the only way you can do that is by, you know, kind of hitting the whole gamut of training. Yeah, so if you got to read my book, <laughs> I, look, I look forward to it. You've got to read my book because I talk about Lydiard and I talk about the concepts of building a base. Yeah. And uh, I come to a place with, with what I've learned over the years that I take exception to it. Uh, How so? Well, because the way the body develops, okay, muscle structure and function. You spend a lot of time developing your aerobic conditioning. You're soliciting the slow twitch fibers almost exclusively for a great length of time. Uh, and, you know, it was uh, Lydia that said, the broader the base, the higher the peak. You know, it's one of those right. things. And so the, the, the problem with that thinking is that when you shift away and they, they make a departure from the base training once they've completed it, right. and they go into the higher intensity stuff. You start to shift away from those slow twitch fibers that you were working and you start trading off the, the, the structure and, the, and the, uh, the metabolic properties of the muscle. So what I firmly come to believe in, and by the way, I just wrote this book. I, I released it last year. It took me almost five years to write it because I was having such a hard time because here's what happens with guys like us, okay? We're, we're influenced by those that preceded us. And we tend to, if we're going to move forward with theory or concepts, it's generally borrowed. It's something we learn from other people, right? And that's what education is. We learn from other people. And what I didn't want to do was I've done that. My first book I wrote, I did that. Right. And I talked about periodization. I talked about phases of training and, you know, get the base work and then, to, you know, the whole thing, 80, 20, I went through that whole thing. And 
I didn't want to do that again because I said, why am I, why am I doing this when I have probably more research and metabolic testing than anybody that I've ever met? I've tested thousands. Hear me when I say this. I've literally tested thousands of athletes yeah. from all walks of life. And so what I did is I got my printer and I just started printing reports. Printing <laughs> reports. And I got this big compilation of case study and started looking at the cause and effect relationships with people's thresholds relative to age, relative to their level of fitness at the time, and started looking at some interesting stuff. And I thought, well, I've seen guys, listen to this now, I've seen guys that are doing ultra marathons that they have the worst threshold in the world. Mm-hmm. They have no aerobic capacity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so they go anaerobic after 120 beats per minute, and they're going to race for six hours at 160 beats per minute. Right. How could this be true? Right. What has been left off the table for the longest time is the ability to develop the anaerobic pathway and uh, reconstitute that lactate into usable fuel and get the what I call an energy rebate. And so I'm not saying don't do aerobic conditioning. I'm just saying that you could do all variations of intensity in a given week in a given workout and end up in the same place. So for example, if you're periodizing your work and you say, I'm going to dedicate 70% of my training to aerobic conditioning because my game is I want to go long. Right. Right. Well, you could do, you could go off for an hour workout and dedicate 60% of that workout to aerobic conditioning and then develop a high intensity training within that same workout in a flow pattern. So Rather than just looking at your heart rate monitor, use some intuition, use some perception. Start paying attention to the way your body's responding to the work. And this is where people get lost. They're either completely following their their id or they're relying exclusively on what the monitor is telling them. And so my athletes, when they're racing, I do not want them to wear a heart rate monitor. It's a witch hunt. Use the monitor for education while you're training. But take from what you've learned and put that together instinctively in your race. Start to trust the way your body responds. Well, this is the thing that I find really, there are a couple of things I find interesting. First of all, I will take issue with you saying guys like us because, um, because my natural inclination is when I hear from some expert is to try and prove them wrong as quickly as I can. Not because I'm trying to be, a dick about it, but because I want to, I, I, what, what I really do is I'd look for counterfactuals. When someone's saying A leads to B, I'm really curious, how often does A lead to C? How often does D lead to B? I just want to see, I just want to see the whole picture because typically people who are teaching something, they've codified it, they've ossified it. So they have a thing to teach. And I'm just really, really curious. So like when I started working with sprinting coaches and they said, well, you have to do, you know, the following drill. Um, I would say, why, what's it doing for me? And in fact, one of my best friends is a world champion cross country runner. And we became best friends from two events. One is we were working with the same coach. He's a distance runner. I'm a sprinter. And we were both, I noticed, sitting out of certain warm-up drills that the coach was telling us to do. And I came up to him while we were not doing one of those drills. And I said, why aren't you doing this drill? And he goes, oh, because it's bullshit. I said, oh my God, I love you. (laughs) Because I thought the same thing. The second one was that uh, he, he came to the track one day and set a personal best and at the end of the of, of doing that, he said, you know, it's so funny. I wasn't going to come out today because I felt like crap. I said, how often have you set personal best when you felt like crap? 
And how often have you felt great and, you know, and barely been able to run? He goes, oh, both of those happen all the time. And I've asked many, many Olympians the same question, and they always have the same answer. Sometimes I had a 105 degree fever and I won the race. Sometimes I felt great and I barely made it out of the starting blocks. I said, well, then we just debunked sports psychology. So, and then the other one was training with this one sprinting coach. Uh, he did something that I adored, but with this first coach I had, we always did our, whatever we were doing for the workouts. And then we did this big cool down. And so then I worked with this other sprinter who at the end of the workout, just got in his car. And I said, uh, so no cool down. He goes, what, what are you talking about? Your muscles are done. You're going to cool down when you drive home. You don't need to do some magic thing. So I'm just always looking. So like with the VO2 max thing, what's interesting to me is if VO2 max was the Holy grail, then we'd line people up at the beginning of a race, do check their VO2 max and give out awards. And the last part of my little rant here is that no one, people don't want to consider the individual differences and the genetic propensities for any of these things. So there's a, there's a lot of data that there are 11 genetic SNPs, 11 bits in your genome that correlate very highly to whether you are VO2 max training responsive or not, whether doing, doing this long, slow stuff will improve your VO2 max or not. I know from my own experience that I'm a non-responder. I can do long, slow shit all day long and nothing changes. And I know other people like Benji Durden, former Olympic, well, almost Olympian Benji, you know, to this day at almost 80, Benji's VO2 max is higher than almost any human being on the planet. He was just born that way. And people don't like to consider the genetic part, which is so ironic because when it comes to sprinting, it's Ralph Mann who won the, who got the silver in the 400 meter hurdles in Munich says there's eight things that make a sprinter. Seven of them are genetic. And the eighth is how well you maximize your genetics. And people just don't like to think that that's true. I had a conversation with Michael Johnson. Oh yeah. And uh, if you recall when he, well, he, he held uh, world records in the 100, 200, 300, 400 for 12 years. And uh, if you've ever watched him run, he looks like a door going, going through space. Yeah. And, you know, and again, I, being me, I, I busted him. I said, I said, so Michael, I said, I said, you run like shit, dude. <laughs> you know what he told me? No. He goes, I haven't lost a race since I was six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the thing, like Otto Bolton, when he was the world champion in the 100, you know, his right foot was turned out like 90 degrees. And people would say, imagine what you could do if your right foot was turned in. He goes, yeah, I wouldn't run as fast. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Right. Yeah. So like, who wants to mess with it? Right. So right. This is what happens with world class runners. If you look at uh, Haley Geber-Selassie, he mm -hmm. runs like a duck. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? What are you going to yeah. do? You say, look, Haley, what if, what? and I have this conversation often with athletes I work with is the what if question, because mm. they're so, they, they want to leave well enough alone. They're so, so bent on trying to leave well enough alone. Yeah. In some cases, I agree. Some cases, I think that you just don't want to mess with it because there may be anatomical issues that are just not going to be corrected. Right. Uh, but then if in a perfect world, and we don't live in a perfect world, but in a perfect world, by putting your posture in the, in the right space, uh, allowing your body to do and to have a marriage with inertia and physics and just allow the right things to occur, you're going to see some astounding performances. 
Yeah. And so what I, what I typically will find with the people I work with that I have changed and I've changed many, many people. We will get to um, that. From being horrific heel strikers to running on their forefoot and um, having great success. Maybe they're not a lot faster, but the cap- capability of putting in more work. They're healthier. They've got longer careers. Doubling up, tripling up yeah. their volume yeah. without injury. We had a guy working for us early on, our first customer service, I'd say manager, but he was the only guy. He was 65 years old at the time. He lived in Denver. We were in Boulder. He ran in our sandals, which was that by that point, you know, four millimeters of rubber strapped to your foot. He ran two and a half miles to the bus, took the bus to Boulder, ran two and a half miles to the office, then went back home. So there's 10. Then he took the dog out for five, 10 miles. And then on the weekends, he did his heavy long distance work training. So he was doing 120 to 140 miles a week. 65 years old, never had a problem. He had perfect form. It was gorgeous to watch. Yeah. So you got, uh, you know, again, I'll get people that want to argue with me and say, well, your body's just going to do what your body does. And there's no sense of trying to influence that. And and I, I take exception to that. I think that let's just say I can't make you a perfect runner. Yeah. But if I can improve the way you move by 20%, if I can reduce the injuries by 20%, and you can increase the volume by 20%. Big difference. Uh, that's huge. I got a theory about this that I want to bounce by you because okay. I've rarely been able to talk to someone about this. But first, actually, a quick Michael Johnson story. Uh, one of my friends and coach slash training partner was a four by 400 meter world champion. And he's racing Michael and he's coming around the second turn in the 400 and he's shoulder to shoulder with Michael. And he kind of looks at Michael and you know, kind of indicates that, hey, we're right next to each other. And Michael just says, see ya <laughs> and puts on another gear <laughs> and my friend jay is like what just happened <laughs> so that was that but anyway here's my thing there are a couple things we learn we we learn to move for a couple different reasons one is to kind of fit in with our tribe our parents our friends our family we adopt movement patterns those yeah. movement patterns get ingrained in our brainstem and sometimes we get those movement patterns just from wearing certain products i mean like i watch little kids who have impeccable form and then they put on shoes and a year later you know same old shit as everybody else um, and once those patterns are wired, I say there's four different kinds of people, some people, and it's all about neuroplasticity. Some people just can't feel anything. They're not getting any feedback, no matter what they do. And so it's really, really, really hard for them to lay down new neural pathways to learn new movement patterns. Some people, they can feel things. They can tell if something hurts or something feels good, um, but they don't have great proprioceptive skills. These are the people who tell me they're not heel striking and they send me a video of them heel striking and they literally don't know that they're doing it. And, you know, they need that video feedback to go, oh, crap. And I remember as a young gymnast, we had a thing in the compulsory floor X routine where you had to put your arms parallel to the ground. It took us weeks to learn what parallel to the ground felt like because it didn't look the way you thought it would. It looked wrong when it was right. And we just had to learn that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Third group of people, they can tell if it hurts or it feels good. Um, They have decent proprioceptive skills. They just need some cues to shorten the learning process. And then the fourth group of people, they're naturals. And the problem they have, because they're really adept at learning new things, the problem they have is you teach them something new and it's really good. They really enjoy it. They'll do too much too soon and then get tired and revert back to one of those previous levels and then have something happen. And they just don't realize, you know, what the glitch was. That's my current working theory. Right. So what I run into a lot 
And in my book, I, I actually make the comment that you can't learn to run by reading something. You can't learn to run <laughs> by watching a video. Right. You can't, you can't watch. I mean, you get on YouTube education and, and watch all these professionals profess on how you're supposed to run. And right. I'm one of them. I'm out there. And, and uh, you know, I've got video that's got half a million hits on how to run. But I will be the first one to tell you that you're not going to learn to run by watching the video. Right. What I've done that I think is probably the most genius thing that I've ever learned was aside from explaining to people while I have them on a treadmill and trying to alter their gait, get them to change their the way they're approaching work, uh, is to let them see it. So I put a video on them right. uh, so that they can see they're looking at their side view while they're while they're running forward. I'll put an iPad up in front of them on a stand while they're running and they can see because they know what they're trying to achieve. Right. That's not rocket science. I know I'm supposed to be on my forefoot. I know I'm not supposed to be overstriding. And I know what my arm swing is supposed to look like. And I know how my posture is supposed to be. But their perception of what they're doing is skewed. So they're out there running around thinking they're doing it right. and It still hurts. And so they want to know, well, this is bullshit. Why, why am I still in pain right. when I'm doing it right? Well, when I alter the perception, when I get them to identify what they were doing wrong and actually see that, in fact, if I said, if it doesn't feel weird, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're not changing, right? Yeah. Well, do you know what Ralph Mann did? Have you seen his system? No. So Ralph, um, who after he stopped competing, became, I think, a biomechanical engineer. And he looked at, I think, 600 sprinters, uh, which for him is anything up to the 400 or 400 hurdles, and identified what he thinks of as the common factors for successful sprinting. And he made a stick figure that's a perfect sprinter. So what he then does with his software, which he made way long ago, and really, you know, if, if he had an Xbox Connect, could have done it almost immediately and better, I think. But he makes a, he measures your limbs and makes a perfect stick figure out of you. And then he films you, but he can only film for a short little window, like you're running across for 10 meters, maybe. And he films you and then overlays the stick figure showing what you should be doing versus what you are doing. Now, when I talked to Ralph years ago, I said, he said, um, we know what we need to get them to do. We don't know how to get them to do it. And I want to talk to you about that because I have a theory about how to get them to do it. But part of what you're doing is just exactly that is getting people to see that what they're, what they think they're doing and what they are doing isn't the same. Other part is like, I do two things. One is I'll try to get them to exaggerate doing it wrong um, and then exaggerate doing the right version, because then you can find that sort of middle ground a little. I've done a thing where I've worked with runners where, where I stand in front of them and have them lean into my hands and I run backwards while they run forwards just to get them you know, into some position that they could never get to on their own to feel what it feels like to not be overstriding. And f- the phenomenon of, of getting that the feedback that you need to make those changes and then realizing exactly what you said, if it doesn't feel wrong, you're doing something wrong because, and, and this is another thing I say, other than people need to know physics is they need to remember that learning a new movement pattern feels quote frustrating because that's the experience of laying down new neural pathways. I mean, what's so interesting to me about this and talking to you about it is we just don't have a movement educational system that gets people to understand the sort of the basics of how you learn to move, how you learn to do these things in a way where people don't feel like there's a problem 
in the learning process, that the learning that what they're experiencing during the learning process is the learning process, not the indication that you can't do it, it's wrong, et cetera. Yeah. So the other epiphany that I had recently, and recently being in the past five years, uh, <laughs> is is that it doesn't make a difference how much you know or what you believe you should be doing if your body is not going to acquiesce. So if you start noticing and you know, I, I, what's his name? Uh, uh, Greg, Greg Cook. You familiar with Greg Cook? No. Greg Cook wrote a book that's called Movement. Okay. He's a physical therapist. And he, he was very eloquent in the way he, he laid it down. It's like, run, you, have to, you have to run well, and then from running well, run more often. But beyond that, he started looking at uh, the thing that I wanted to say, and I just mind farted for a moment. From contact, there's this whole concept of the win-last mechanism. I'm sure you're right. familiar with this, right? Yeah. So you need to make well, so contact. Wait, for, hold on. I, I'm familiar. For people who are listening, do me a favor and explain the win-last mechanism. Okay. Win-last mechanism is a function of, it's a mechanical function of, you put stress here, it causes tension. Well, wait, hold on. You got to pretend people aren't watching you, so you got you to describe oh, yeah. it. All right. So let's imagine that we have rope on a winch. You're trying to pull your car out of a ditch with the winch, okay? As that wheel turns and puts the tension on that on the, the cord or, or uh, cable that you have tied to whatever, right? That tensioning effect is something that occurs underneath your foot. So the fascia, the connective tissue, the tendons and ligaments that are attached to first to your great toe, when you have flexion in your great toe, you create tension on that the, the fascial structure beneath your foot, and the result is your 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 midfoot becomes stable. Yep. So you have mobility at the great toe that causes stability at the the midfoot, and the midfoot stability promotes mobility at the ankle, and the mobility at the ankle promotes stability at the next joint up, which would be your knee, and then the mobility that comes from that in the hip and so on and so forth. So there's this alternating effect of mobility, stability, mobility, stability. So if you look at the two concepts of heel striking, is it, is it okay or not? Forefoot running, is it proper? If you bypass the, the physics of causing this engagement and this structural engagement to occur in the sequence that it's supposed to, then you're never going to be able to be effectively stable. Right. And so, so, the concept of getting on your forefoot is critical if you really want to develop good force production, because force production is going to come from stability. Yep. And the stability is going to come from putting your foot in the proper position on the ground. And so someone may argue that, oh, well, you know, a heel strike is fine. You land in your calcaneus, there's nothing to protect you. It's a ball. It's unstable. It's Well, beyond that, it's just just the fact that there's, there's no structural engagement. There's right. nothing that's going to cause this concomitant engagement of the structure up into your your right. pelvic floor it's not going to happen because you know what i'll see people are heel striking hip problems they're collapsing at the joint at the knee but if you start looking at the structure let's just say that you have no mobility in the ankle then everything north of that's going to be problematic right if you have issues uh with the the first ray the the big toe doesn't ha have much mobility then you start to run into issues with failure in the structure in the middle of your foot. So 
I've gotten to a place where I, I pay really, really close attention to all the little uh, niggles and circumstance and what's supposed to happen first, what precedes the next movement pattern. And I start looking at the structure as a whole and say, all right, well, here's what you're trying to do. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what we want to correct. Now, some people will never get their ankle to allow them to have good range, and which means they're going to get their foot off the ground too early. And so they're never going to get a chance to get stable when they make ground contact. So I look at all of that. I mean, in my lab, what I'll do is I'll have people come in. I've got an amazing treadmill. It, it, it'll go 28 miles an hour in two directions with a 28% grade. And, and, I, and I'll hook up cameras. And I, I've learned from years of doing this that I cannot judge you with the naked eye. No, in fact, um, I was in Bill Sands' lab when he was out at uh, what's now uh, Colorado Mesa University. His line was, you can't learn anything in under 500 frames a second. Yeah, I, and I agree with him. Yeah. Because I'll look at somebody with a naked eye and it sound looks pretty good and then reveal what's really occurring when I slow it down. And glad that I didn't open my big mouth and say, oh, it looks good because, you know, in fact, it was terrible. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I mean, that, this, is, this is my jam. This is what I do day to day. People come to me from, you know, I uh, had a fellow here a couple of days, and I, you know, I'm, I've been disheveled because all my stuff has been in flux. I finally got my treadmill up. The guy showed up. I had the treadmill up a day before he got there, and he drove up. Where I'm in Middle Tennessee. He drove up from Florida to see me, right? And we spent three hours together, and he turned around and went home. And I have this happen often. I have people travel from – I almost feel guilty when they – go through that much trouble just to see me, you know, but the, I've been very successful in creating solutions for people. I'm no physician. I'm not a PT. I'm not, I'm just a guy that's been spending a lot of time studying and getting evidence, learning from people that come to see me. And uh, I've come to this position that there is a way to do this. And uh, I don't want to, I cannot endorse a shoe that will not allow you to have an even playing field. You know, you need to, you need to have an opportunity to function. Yeah. Now, what I was going to say about your shoe that I'm, I have a problem with <laughs> oh. is that on paper, every, the boxes are all checked, but the body that's trying to get into the shoe is not prepared. And so I'll have people jump into a, a, a minimal shoe and, and really hurt themselves. And it could be, as we discussed earlier, it could be a function of trying to do too much too early. Yeah. It could be that their structures are just defunct. They're just not, they're not able to engage the ground properly, not take advantage of the potential of that afferent information coming to the body well. Uh, I've got a client in Georgia right now that he's, he's had plantar fasciitis for a year. He's coming up to see me probably in two weeks. He's going to, and he's in the medical profession. He's a radiologist. Mm. And he does, he can't find, I said, don't you know somebody in the medical that can help you? You know, and he's just been frustrated as hell. And yeah. he's been changing shoes. And, you know, I, I've been, uh, I've been a, a staunch follower of all the rock tape stuff that these guys have. Oh, come on. They got some amazing, amazing people that work for them. I don't disagree with that. I think, I think there's a, I, I think that there's just a lot of placebo stuff going on there. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying that for the situations where it does work, they're fewer than the situations for which it's a placebo. I don't know. I got you got to give me an example. 
Well, this is my N equals one is all the people who taped the crap out of me where it made absolutely no difference whatsoever. And then when I look at when I look at some of the things that they're trying to do, where at high speed in particular, there's no way you're getting any sensory feedback that's going to alter biomechanics in any way um, with, you know, some tiny bit of skin stretching that's occurring from the tape. But that's. Well, no, that's yeah. And I agree with you. That's not that's not the go to move for me. Yeah. But so what I've learned and I've gone through all their courses, I've been. They've supported me for over a decade. I know these guys very well. And they have some tremendous minds that are that are doing education with those guys. And I've been around the block a million times. And I know when I'm in the right room. And right. I know when it's time to leave. Okay. And I've never been disappointed when I've gone and done an education. I'm, look, I am like you, more than happy to be proven wrong with something that's useful. So, um, so, well, so again, let me give you an example. The, okay. the rock, rock pods. Yeah. Okay, and anybody that's gone to a massage parlor and had them cup, you know, mm-hmm. and they're talking about pulling the bad blood out. I thought these people are insane. There's there's no value in this, but I got the course for free. So I'm going to go and just, you know, because I want to do it, I, I want to check it out. And I went in with absolute apprehension. And what I've learned, and, and I mean, again, evidence-based, mm-hmm. cupping, dynamically cupping someone's uh, posterior chain the calf down to the Achilles, put them on a treadmill and they were like on a pain scale one to 10 before I cut them incapable of running, right? Incapable. 10 being, Oh my God, I'm dying. This is really painful. One being zero. I don't feel a thing. Be a 10, put the cups on them, put them on the treadmill for five minutes, pull the cups off, put them back on the treadmill, zero pain. So what do you think is causing that? Well, what it's doing is it's causing a decrease in the inflammation between the facial layers, Okay. allowing the facial layers to slide, encouraging more hyaluronic acid to go in between the facial layers. So it's like the WD-40 between these. Yeah, these yeah. Uh, so you're just basically causing things to be more agreeable. It's more congruent. Well, you know, there, I mean, there there's a lot of situations where inducing a particular kind of stress can have beneficial effects. So like that, um, prolotherapy, which I'm a big fan of, um, because that saved my life and I've seen that before. Here's where my brain goes on that. I'm not going to disagree with what you're describing at all. I'm going to start wondering, are there other explanations just out of sheer curiosity? Like, could it be just, you know, a neurological thing where the cupping, which feels weird as shit, um, you know, where it's maybe shutting off some nervous impulse that was telling the central governor in your brain, oh, stop doing that. And now you're okay. I mean, there may, I mean, for all I know, you're completely right. And I'm totally cool with that. I'm also going to be the first one to look for a step further. Okay. 10 years ago, when I first met these guys, uh, they introduced me to the concept of tape. Mm-hmm. And it absolutely is a neurological influence that's going off. There's more nerve endings in your fascia than there is anywhere else in your absolutely. body. Absolutely. And now they're concluding that there's actually contractile properties in the fascia, which people did not know. That's interesting. Six months ago, nobody found this out, right? Okay. And, and so they're actually seeing that. So hold on. Do you mean, you mean like literally contractile or sort of, yes. um, or, or what's the word I'm like, like, or reactively? No, it, you, you, there's actually contractile properties within the fashion. Oh, fascinating. You know, it used to be that you go to uh, an anatomy class and they, they, they strip the fascia away from the cadaver so that they could see the muscles. The right. Yeah. Totally discount potential yeah. of any value being in that fashion. Yeah, they're getting the white white stuff off the orange so that they can get to the pulp, right? right. This is the way it's been. You now, this is kind of funny because five years ago nobody thought about it. 
this, right? The people that are looking into this, they just released uh, recently scientific evidence last year that they just identified that fascia has more nerve endings than used to be. They say skin, right? Skin has more nerve endings than any organ on your body. Now they identify, well, no, it's not. It's the fascia is more important. So how much influence you can create in these fascia layers has very big repercussion. Now, I'm not going to discount the, the, the idea that there's some placebo value. I put hands on somebody and they feel better. Right. right? And it could be that I've done nothing, but, right. but just made them feel better. But what I'll do, again, I'll do a clinic and I, I teach taping. I teach uh, blading. I teach cupping. I teach, I teach all the different things that they, that they do. So a guy comes to me hurt and I'll tape him. What's the repercussion from that? I find out that the guy runs a marathon. He was able to run the marathon pain-free, right? Okay, that's interesting. Then it happens again. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. So now it's starting to be compelling. When I start noticing, I start getting attentions uh, driven when I start seeing that time and time and time again, there's resolve. Here's the question that I that I that comes up for me the way I think about it is all the my original question of what do you think is happening from the cupping, for example, and you described a number of biochemical processes. Some of those are very easily testable, some of them not. And that's the part that I'm really curious about, because because, you know, if if that theory or if what you're describing as the uh, the mechanism for action is legit, then we could see some of that. And I'll also throw in, it may be that that happens for that. That's the causal phenomenon for some people and not for others. So, I mean, there's a bunch of things in here. Again, I'm just really curious because I'm always looking to find the thing that's going to work. Now, happily, I haven't had an injury for of any import for 12 years since I got out of regular shoes. So it's not something that concerns me any longer the way it did in my first couple of years of sprinting, where I went from injury to injury to injury, and people tried every modality known to man and none of them worked because fundamentally the problem was that I had a form issue that no matter what they did to make things go away, it was going to get you know activated again the next time I ran. Sure. And that's what's still happening these days, by the way. Right. right. So people get hurt and they identify that, oh, it's time to take a, a week off. Yeah. They take a week off, they go out and run again and they hurt themselves. So there's a limiting factor. It could be 20 miles a week, 30 miles a week. There's, and, and I tell people all the time, it's a, it's a matter of uh, uh, strength to weight ratio. Right. How strong you are, how, how re- resistant you are to pain or, or injury because your structure is better than, than somebody that's not as good yeah. as you. So you can get 40, but you're stuck at 40, right? And you know that the Holy Grail is at 60. In order for you to perform at the level that you want to perform, you need to get up to that volume that you're not able to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I take people out of that 40 and put them at 60 all day long. And then all of a sudden, because they're just doing more work right. and they're, they're attempting to do it better, it may, maybe they're only doing it better for 40% of their running, but 40% better is better, right? Right. So they're able to do more. And I have athletes I work with that are doing 24 hour events. You know, they're trying to run for 24 hours. Yeah. And so we'll get up in that hundred mile a week stratosphere. And they prior to changing the way they move, getting into a more agreeable shoe um, and just approaching the work, by the way, this is not just slogging along either. This is with intensity Yeah. and they're able to get in that hundred mile a week Minus injury, yeah, you know, tired, sore, of course, but we're not talking about 
my Achilles is railing on me, my IT band's going off, my back's bothering me, I've got stress fractures in my feet. None of that stuff's happening, and they're 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 working in a shoe that would might be fifty uh, percent of what they were wearing before. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what I hate when I see when I feel like I failed someone where they came to see me, and then later I see a picture of them on social media or something, and they're wearing a Hoka. I mean, it blows my mind. I mean, you know, I, when I, when the Hoka first came out, I said to people, "You're going to feel better for a little while. You'll get, you'll get more miles in, and in two years, you won't be able to run again." And because you're you can't feel it, but what you're doing is you're sending you're spreading the pressure out so your foot's not feeling it, but the force is going straight into your joints. You're going to be screwed. And they all told me I was crazy, and I don't know one of them who isn't you know who's still running. But hey, I want to I got to back up to the the thing you said about uh, like our shoes and people in them. On the one hand, I completely agree with you. There's some people whose bodies aren't there yet, and we do the best we can to tell people, look, here's how you break it in slowly and break it in, but meeting your body. Like if you haven't been to the gym for a while, you don't go into the gym and do eight hours of bicep curls. You do a set, you see how you feel the next day. If you're sore, you wait till you feel better. When you can do that set and it's no problem, then you add a rep, then you add a set, whatever you're going to do. Um, we it's know that. Yeah, exactly. And I will tell you the good news is that having now done this with, you know, getting close to a million people is we, almost never hear from people who yet have any serious problems other than the kind of normal transitional stuff. And even quote, normal transitional stuff is not normal. I have a blog post that's about how calf soreness is optional. And, but, you know, in fact, I'm about to do a, a podcast rant. Um, it occurred to me the other day, there's this whole thing with sprinters. Like you can't train in your spikes because it's going to ruin your Achilles. It's like, no, 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 no. It's the other way around. Your Achilles got ruined from wearing the higher heel shoe where you're not using your Achilles fully because you're not letting it stretch fully. And now it's gotten either. I don't know that it's actually shortened. I think that's a whole, I think there's a lot of mythology in there, but you've certainly trained your, your reflex arc to think that, that your Achilles is done stretching when it's still got two inches to go. So your brain thinks that, you know, you've got to stop right there and it's going to stop you. And so that's why you're ending up with Achilles problems, not because there's something inherent to spikes that are causing a problem. It's the other way around. Well, transitioning from different style of shoes. And I see this often too. People will race, they'll race in a low profile shoe. Right. And they'll train in a shoe that's got, you know, a massive stack height, huge heel. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, if you're going to run, if you're going to, why would you want to, why would you want to train in something that's going to be contrary to what you're But here, here's the reason. The reason is the mythology of um, most coaches who, like you said, are just regurgitating what they learned from someone else who didn't investigate what they did. I mean, it's generations of regurgitation. So what they've been told is you can't train in a racing flat. You have to train in a big, thick padded shoe, and then you race in the racing flat. That's why it's called a racing flat. And this is just mythology. And it's been so that's why they do it. And more, they do it because they're afraid of doing something different than what everyone else is doing and what their coach has told them. Because if they're moderately successful, even with the problems they run into by racing in the flat, for example, they're rightly so anxious about doing something different. If I was a, if I was, you know, top 10, top 20 in the world, the idea of doing something different would scare the crap out of me unless I had a really good reason to do it. If I was injured and someone said, this is the way to get there or to get well, better. Believe me, I run into this often where I get into communities where the people there have coaches. Yeah. And a lot of times the coaches are there in the clinic that I'm doing. 
Yeah. So they're they're taking a hit because I'm quickly disputing a lot of the fallacies that are being tossed around the room. Absolutely. Uh, the advantage that I've had, which is kind of cool, to be honest with you, is that I've got a name out there now. Right. And so the people that are coming are coming because they think they think they're coming to see the second coming of Christ. They, <laughs> you know, and it, it's kind of ironic, right? But my reputation precedes me. They know I'm going to be gruff, but yeah. they know that I've had really great success with the people I've worked with. And usually it's a function of people saying, oh, my God, you got to go see this guy. Yeah, I watch this on social media. It's like watching a tennis match. There's conversations going back and forth. This hurts. That hurts. That hurts. Somebody says, go see that guy. Right. And I'll keep getting that. Yeah. Who is he? And I'm just watching. You know, they don't even know that I'm looking at it. And, and I won't even comment because I, I don't want to get in the middle of that. I don't, but I'll see people fighting with each other about who to go see. And it always comes back to you got to go see this guy. Yeah. So when I come into the room, when I come into the room and I offer my opinion, uh, they're paying attention. It's like EF Hutton, they're paying close attention. So then they'll ask me those those pointed questions like, what shoe should I wear? And they want me to say ultra. They want me to say whatever. Hoka. Okay. They, want me to, they want me to say something right. that I'm not going to say. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to say it. And you know, it's like I used to joke with people. I said, you know, you would think with the influence I have around the country, I have clients all over the world. I got huge influence with people. By the way, I, I sold a shit ton of shoes for Topo. They don't know it. Right. But I sold a lot of their shoes until they started to develop more stack height in the product. Yeah. I thought, another one. I used to sell. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, Hold on. By the way, um, the thing you said before about you can imagine the conversations in the companies where they say we've got to make it thicker because that's what's going to sell. I, I know the people who've been in those rooms. That is exactly the conversation. It is undoubted. I mean, there's I literally I won't mention names. I sat around all day Saturday with someone who was in that room who started one of the shoe companies and they were told they had to go higher, 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 more and more cushioning, change the entire DNA of what he believed in because they needed to sell more shoes. And it's one of the it's one of the things that we are incredibly grateful for is we've never had corporate overlords telling us we had to do anything different than what we know is real. And so and even more, if someone ever tried to buy the company by now, they'd be smart enough, hopefully smart enough to realize that changing one thing about the DNA of what we're doing would destroy the entire company. It wouldn't sell more shoes because over almost 50 percent of our sales are from from existing customers. If they changed it, that half of the business would disappear instantly. So, you know, it's we're, we're happily in a good position about that. But you were absolutely right. I had a company come to me again. In this case, I'll, I'll reserve uh, dropping names. But these guys were principals at Nike. Mm-hmm. These guys were big players for Nike. Oh, I, I, the room, they hired me to create a marketing position for a shoe that they were bringing to market. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to go much further about that. Shoe. Was this was this semi recently? It's probably been about five or six years ago. OK, then it's not who I'm thinking of. OK. But anyway, we had the same kind of conversation. Yeah. These guys go, they, he goes, they don't give a flip whether this shoe's good for you or bad for you. All they care about is, is it going to sell? Is it going to make money? Richard, we, we've had the CEOs of 
multi-billion dollar footwear brands say directly to a friend of ours who's a billionaire who got really interested in what we were doing. Uh, and these are guys that he knew from Harvard Business School. So we reached out to them and he said, uh, what do you think about this whole natural movement thing? And almost verbatim, each one of them said the same thing. It's totally legit, but we can't do it because it would be admitting everything we've been saying for 50 years is wrong. Yeah. I no, mean, and that's true. I mean, it's yeah. because you do, you have to, you have to back up in a lot of a lot of the marketing positions that you created for yourself. It's yeah. you know, the marketing is, um, and I say this with with a combination of envy and anger. Brilliant, because again, backing up to you need to know physics. Like my favorite example is uh, when Adidas came out with their Boost foam, and they bounce a steel ball off some cement and shows that it barely bounces. They bounce it off some the other company's foam, quote unquote, and it bounces a little bit and then off their new boost foam. And it bounces like the first bounce comes up to maybe 30% of where they dropped it from. And then it bounces about 10 more times. And I, having started teaching people physics when I was 14, immediately knew that there was an exhibit at the Exploratory Museum in San Francisco, where they have a steel, little steel ball and a steel plate um, with concrete underneath it. And you drop the steel ball through a piece of plexiglass with a hole in it. And the first bounce hits the plexiglass and then it bounces 260 more times. I said, so based on physics, you want to make a shoe made out of steel and you only want to run on steel with concrete underneath it. I mean, that's the physics of it. And I've even got a recording. It's on YouTube of a guy from Adidas. Um, someone asked him what's energy return. And clearly nobody was paying attention because the first thing he said is there's no such thing as energy return. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, it's the number one thing people have been advertising for the last 40 years. So, I mean, it, anyway, we could go on about that. For I know it's, it's a frustrating affair. And again, you know, going back to the fact that I looked at your shoes and I said, you know, he's checking all the boxes. And, and I thought there's nothing in his quiver that violates the initial premise. Yeah. Because it's either you believe it or you don't. Yeah. And I believe it. I, I believe that you want to, you want to protect your feet. Yep. By the way, one of my friends who just passed away recently had the world record for the most marathons run barefoot. Oh. He ran uh, like 240 marathon. He was running a marathon every week barefoot. What's his name? I knew you were going to ask me that. Sorry, I have a hard time with names, so my apologies. I will send it to you. I okay. will send it to you. All right. I can't believe I can't remember his name. But this guy, he lives in Malibu. He lived in Malibu. They found him. Found him uh, passed away in his car nah. nobody he was in a parking lot they thought he, he was missing everybody's looking for him right and uh it was funny because i used to tease him all the time he'd come see me and he was all about what i was doing and he would i would have him get on the treadmill and run barefoot just so people would see what it looks like when yeah. you run the way your body was designed to run we would run together and he he you know every now and then he would step on something sure would, he'd have an issue with it and I go, what's wrong with your foot? He goes, oh, you know, I stepped on a little, he was from Venezuela. I think it was Venezuela. He goes, oh, I stepped on a little something, you know, and it just kind of, I said, put some shoes on. <laughs> you know, you wearing shoes. I've only had, I spend most of my time barefoot. Um, when I'm in shoes, I wear mismatched colors. I was in Costco a little while ago, standing in line at the pharmacy and the guy behind me goes, hey, your shoes don't match. And the pharmacist without missing a beat or without looking said, he's wearing shoes. And so in the 12 years that I've been, or 13 years I've been doing this, I've only had two injuries from being barefoot. It was the exact same one. I stubbed my toe on something that I wasn't paying attention to. That's it. Got you know, a little cut on the front of my big toe. That's it. Well, so, you know, and but this, I was going to say this earlier and I did 
every clinic I do, I get everyone in the clinic to run a natural services barefoot. Great. I'll take them on. And I said, okay, we're going to do this and that. And this and we're with some intensity, you know, we make sure that the, that the area that we're going to run out is safe. Yeah. But natural surface, right? Not one time that I have anybody come back to me after the back. So, you know, ever since I did that, my Achilles is bothering me or my, I've been having plantar fasciitis or something <laughs> that never happens. Yeah. Right. And so going to the point where people will talk about, well, you have to transition. I took these people's shoes away from them and they were able to run and they didn't have any issue. Yeah. So explain that to me. Yeah. So no, I saw, I, we, we saw it in, I saw it in Bill Sands lab where we, we did a little pilot study and we just took a bunch of people and had them run in their regular favorite shoes and then barefoot and then in our sandals and 90% of them without within, well, instantly basically started running better when they took off their shoes and the small percentage that didn't, um, it took maybe 20 seconds of instructions, which not even instructions, just a couple of cues until they went, Oh, I got it. And then they did the same. Cause again, doing it wrong hurts, doing it right. Feels good. You're not an idiot. You're going to not do something that hurts. If you don't, if you don't think that you're supposed to, <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, Danny Abshar, I'll give him credit for this. Uh, we were doing these clinics and he, he, he was famous for having people stand on a box and jump yeah. off the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it's it's something that I'm uh, I'm actually making a video about that, which it's a variation on that, which is um, uh, I have a couple, I have a phone book. I say everything you need to know about uh, running, you learn from uh, this this book and it's phone book. And the um, uh, this it's the same thing, just step off of it and land on one foot and then bound off of it and look where, how you land on your foot. I mean, that's it. Oh, you're, yeah. It, you, I've never had anybody jump off the block onto their heels. No, never happens. And, yeah. yeah. And thousands of people that I've done yeah. this with. Uh, it anyway. got out of fashion after a while. I quit doing it, but you know, I mean, we could do this all day long. Right? I, we, so we could. So let's, so let's wrap it up by doing this. First of all, this has been a total, total pleasure. Um, and secondly, do me a favor, tell people how they can find out what you're up to get in touch with you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All right. Well, the, the easiest way to get a hold of me is through my website, which is diazhumanperformance.com. So D-I-A-Z humanperformance.com. That's correct. Perfect. And uh, everything we do is there. And I have some videos that are uh, about 8,000 followers on, on YouTube. And that's just my name, Richard Diaz. You know, and then, of course, I can be found on, on Instagram. And it's, it's at DSHP. You know, it's all kind of an abbreviation off of a DS Human Performance. You know, somewhere along the way, I could have had some snazzy name for my business. <laughs> but, you know, I've just, it's just been too many years. And I just, I'm not about to. Yeah, I think uh, I think that uh, that ship has sailed. Yeah. So, um, well, Richard, I look forward to what's next. We can we definitely can do more of this and we shall um, and we'll have some more fun. I think we did answer the question, albeit obliquely about, yes, can you change your gait or should you or not? Um, and, and ways of going about that. But more importantly, you know, I know people will want to reach out to hopefully both of us and explore that some more because it really my wife has a line that I adore. She says, you know, there's enough shoe companies in the world. You don't need another one unless your shoes change people's lives. And we just hear it all day, every day. And I like to say, we're not doing anything other than getting out of the way to let your body tell you how to change your life. And, you know, you're doing that same work. And this is my only, literally my only hope on the planet or only hope in my mind is that we live long enough to see that what we're doing 
become common wisdom in the way that the mythology of padding, art support, motion control, et cetera, has in the last 50 years. And uh, it seems to me like it can happen because we're getting more and more people to start to experience it. And at a certain point, when you hit it, when you get to a kind of critical mass, then even the doubters go, ah, let me give it a shot. And once you have the experience, you can't deny that. There's no arguing with that experience. So fingers crossed that uh, that we that we both live to see that. Yeah, you know, and uh, I know we need to shut this down, but just let me share with you that I wouldn't continue to do what I'm doing if I wasn't being successful with it and I didn't yeah. have people that are getting benefit from my work. Yeah. If, if what I'm doing isn't working, somebody would have shut me down a long time ago. A friend of mine, a guy named Dr. Tom Raven, who's the guy who taught prolotherapy to most of the people who do it and people can look it up. But I said to Tom, how do you know that prolo works? If there's not research behind it, he goes, because I don't take insurance. I charge a lot of money. It's really painful. And people come back. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, Richard, thank you again. And for everyone else, thank you. Um, If you have any questions or comments, et cetera, you can drop me or, you know, requests, people who you want to have me talk to on the show, people who you think will tell me I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, um, aka having my head up my butt happy to do it. It's always very entertaining. Um, doesn't happen. doesn't work. But anyway, drop an email to move, M-O-V-E at jointhemovementmovement.com. Go check out the website, jointhemovementmovement.com. And you'll find all the previous episodes, places you can engage with us, how you can share this and spread the word. Most importantly, though, just go out, have fun and live life feet first. <laughs>